Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to the book of Ruth, this beautiful book. It takes place during the time of the judges. We're continuing this short series. This morning, Dr. Walker will be back from sabbatical in two weeks from this morning. But to summarize the story up to this point, in chapter 1, we saw that after the deaths of Naomi's husband and her two adult sons in the land of Moab, Naomi decides to return to Israel. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite, also decides that she will stick with Naomi and return with her to Israel, even though she is a foreigner. Ruth's moving declaration of commitment to Naomi and to the God of Israel is a famous passage from chapter 1. But as the two women return from Moab to Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, Naomi's mournful cry is, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. But then in chapter 2, we begin to see a ray of hope. Ruth, Ruth goes out to glean in the barley fields, which involves picking grain from the already harvested fields. And it turns out that Ruth just happens, I put that word in quotes, because we know it's the providence of God, she happens to choose a field belonging to Boaz, who she later learns is a relative of her deceased husband, a possible kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a kind and honorable man, and he treats Ruth well. So chapter 2 ends with Ruth gleaning every day in the fields of Boaz throughout the barley and the wheat harvests, which would have been a period of probably six to eight weeks. Now we turn to chapter three. Listen as I read God's holy and inspired word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant." Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. 
And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for, you, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, will not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could, rec- could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. To our modern eyes, this story takes an odd direction. But as we will see, what we have here is a beautiful picture of Ruth's bold trust in a worthy Redeemer, and Boaz faithfully promising to exercise that role on on behalf of Ruth and Naomi. And we'll see that these seemingly strange actions have much to teach us about the certainty of Christ's word of promise in the gospel. We want to look at this passage under three main headings. The first is understanding the meaning of these culturally distant actions. Second, what we learn from the three main characters. And finally, points of application to our relationship to Jesus Christ. So first, understanding the meaning of these culturally distant actions. In verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Some translations read, Should I not seek a home for you? Naomi is talking about finding Ruth a husband. For a woman in an ancient culture like Israel, a husband was the the typical source of security and provision. We might say rest. And Naomi is thinking about Boaz as a possibility. She mentions that he is a relative, and she advises Ruth to go to the threshing floor at night where she can secretly communicate to Boaz without anyone else knowing about it. Let's think about the threshing floor. This was simply an area near the fields uh, where the sheaves of grain were threshed and winnowed. Winnowing involved throwing the mixture in the air on a windy day, and the stalks and the chaff would blow further away and the heavier grains of barley or wheat would simply fall directly to the ground. After a day of winnowing, you would have a pile of separated grain, and that grain would be worth a lot. 
It was the result of a whole year of harvest, of all this work that went into raising the crop. And, and Boaz and his fellow workers would have been planning to sleep near the grain pile to protect it until it could be properly stored. But what are we to think about Naomi's instructions to Ruth about going to the threshing floor after dark and lying down at the feet of Boaz? Clearly, this was an action that was somewhat unusual. We read that Boaz is startled in the middle of the night when he realizes that Ruth is sleeping there. He doesn't usually wake up at midnight and find someone sleeping there at his feet. But also, Boaz clearly understands the message in Ruth's action. So it must have been a culturally acceptable practice that constituted a legitimate way in which a woman could symbolically ask for a man to act in this role of kinsman redeemer. Essentially, Ruth was asking Boaz to marry her and thus to redeem the land of her deceased husband and to continue her deceased husband's line. This was a very bold action on Ruth's part. But the plan did have its risks. What if the workers there on the threshing floor saw her? She might be accused of being an immoral woman. It was a potentially scandalous situation. Also, what if Boaz said no to her? It reminds me of some of the marriage proposals we see on the news. What if the guy pops the question to his girl at the big baseball game in front of the whole stadium on the jumbotron? Well, that might be great, but what if she says no? Talk about embarrassment. The whole world knows. But Ruth was willing to take the risks of going to the threshing floor and taking this action, clearly out of love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, but also out of a growing respect for the character of Boaz. And look again how Ruth makes her request to Boaz when he wakes up at midnight and finds her there. This is verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Some translation have spread the hem of your garment over me. But it is literally wings. It's the same word that Boaz had used in chapter 2 to commend her that she's trusted under the wings of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of asking for the protection and provision of Boaz as a redeemer and a husband. And how does Boaz respond? In verse 10, we see he praises Ruth. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz is saying that Ruth did not have to do this. She did not have to take this step for Naomi. It wasn't required It wasn't an obligation on Ruth's part. She had every right to marry a young man and not seek out a redeemer. And obviously, Boaz must have been older. And he says that Ruth's last kindness was greater than the first. The first kindness was 
her decision in Moab to stick with Naomi through thick and thin. And we know that Ruth did that because of her newfound faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Boaz is saying this last kindness, he calls it, is just as remarkable, if not more so. Ruth decides to follow Naomi's advice and seek out a kinsman redeemer. What a sacrifice. I can see the teaser for the Hallmark movie about this. Mother-in-law chooses husband for her daughter-in-law. Just what every girl dreams about. (laughs) Boaz knows that this is a great act of kindness by Ruth. Another use of the term hesed. We saw that term two weeks ago in verse 10. This last kindness, hesed, meaning steadfast love, faithful love. And Boaz tells Ruth that he will surely redeem her the next day, but first there are things that must fall into place. There is another relative who is closer than he is. We don't ever find out his name. He's kept anonymous in the book of Ruth, but Boaz will see to the matter. He tells Ruth to wait until early morning to leave the threshing floor. Well, that brings us to our next main point. What do we learn from the three main characters of this story? Well, let's start with Naomi. Naomi begins this chapter with a concern for Ruth. She wants to find rest for Ruth, a husband who will provide for her. Naomi is coming out of her bitterness. She is beginning again to trust in the Lord, and as a result, she is beginning to actively love others again. She's turning from an inward focus of despair and beginning to believe again that God may have some purpose in all the sorrows she's faced. And this is no small thing. To lose your husband and both of your sons imagine that, was not only a massive grief, it was also the loss of Naomi's only hope for food and shelter and security in the world at that time. But now, against all hope, Naomi starts to believe that God may have given her Ruth as a means of blessing far beyond what she had initially imagined. What a great irony. A Moabite woman, about as low as you can go in terms of positions of power in ancient Israel. But by the end of the story, the women of Bethlehem will be saying to Naomi that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. We see here that God is treating Naomi with great kindness and mercy as he brings her out of deep bitterness. When Ruth brings home more grain from Boaz, she reports Uh, His words in verse 17, Ruth says, He said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That phrase is literally, you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Does that remind you of anything? In chapter 1, Naomi had said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now here we have a symbolic gesture that Naomi is no longer empty. Maybe this morning, someone listening to this message is in a place of deep pain and sorrow. Maybe it's even spilling over 
to bitterness, bitterness at the injustices of life, and maybe even bitterness to God. How could a good God have ever allowed my life to turn out this way? You might be tempted to think. The greatest answer of Scripture to the mystery of God's providence is that the Father sent the Son And the Son willingly came to live a life of perfect holiness and love on this earth. And yet, for the Son to ultimately suffer more than any person in history. For Him to be abandoned and betrayed by His friends. For Him to be mocked and reviled for telling the truth. For Him to be unjustly tried and crucified by jealous and scheming leaders for him to experience the judgment of God on sin and yet all for our salvation, one who did not deserve it. Even with very little, Naomi, we see, began to trust anew in the wonderful God of covenant love. In fact, as we will see in chapter 4, Ruth and Boaz will end up being in the very line of the Messiah so that Ruth and Boaz, their names end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. As deep as your pain might be, God calls you, as he called Naomi, to trust in him even in the darkness. And he promises that through Jesus Christ, his light will shine on you however hard the road. And in fact, because the Father turned away his face from the Son, when he was bearing our sins. We have the assurance that God's face will never turn away from us if we belong to Jesus Christ. Naomi gives us a picture of turning again to the Lord in the darkness of feeling abandoned and deep pain. That brings us to Ruth. Ruth shows us a picture of boldly coming to Christ. This is a picture of the only way to come to Jesus for the saving of your soul. You must come and trust in him and ask him to spread his wings over you, to quote Ruth, to provide a covering of his righteousness on your behalf, to cover you from the storm of judgment that is justly due to each and every one of us because of our sins. Boaz was a relative, so he could function as this redeemer. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Talking about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation, that's to atone for our sins. Wouldn't you think that Ruth had some hesitancy about taking the risk of going to the threshing floor at night. Her heart must have been beating pretty hard as she walked there thinking about this. It would be natural to think about what might go wrong. When a person comes to place his or her trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, there's usually a swirl of possible doubts, of hesitancy. You might think, I'm too far gone. I know my sin and I can't believe that that Christ would receive me. I know that his gospel is for people to trust him, and I know others trust him, but I just somehow can't believe it's true for me. Or maybe you might think, what if it all turns out to be a myth? Doesn't our society just say that the Bible's a myth? If there is any 
argument in your mind as to why you cannot come to Christ, that argument is a lie. Jesus Christ is absolutely truthful, and he invites whosoever will to come to him and receive salvation from him. I think of people in the Bible who come boldly to Jesus. I think of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. He's sitting by the roadside in Jericho. Here's this man who's blind, and he hears that Jesus is coming by, and there's a great crowd that day on hand. But Bartimaeus knows his need, and there he is probably in the back of the crowd somewhere, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You think the crowd might understand, but they don't, and they rebuke him, and they tell him to be quiet. But the text says that he cried out all the more. He was bold. He knew that he needed help desperately. He knew that he couldn't heal himself. He couldn't give sight to his eyes. He knew that Jesus was his only hope. Ruth knew that in coming to Boaz, she risked possible rejection or that if she were seen, her actions might be misinterpreted. But she overcame all doubt. She put aside all hesitancy and she, she boldly approached him. That is how you and I must come to Jesus Christ. Children, you all know that Zacchaeus was short. You, you probably know that Bible story, but he climbed the tree to see Jesus. He didn't hesitate. The sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair, she didn't care what anybody else thought of her. She knew that Jesus alone could save her from her sins. He was her only hope. Ruth encourages us to come boldly to Jesus Christ. But what about Boaz? This brings us to his example. Clearly, Boaz points us to Christ. Boaz loves Ruth with an unselfish love, a love that cares for her and is willing to go to great sacrifice on her behalf. We will see the costliness of Boaz's role in chapter 4, his role as a redeemer. But notice in chapter 3 two aspects of how Ruth, how Boaz gives Ruth assurance of his commitment to her. First, Boaz gives her his word of promise that is sealed with an oath. Verse 13, Boaz says, Remain tonight and in the morning, if he, this other relative, will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. There's the oath. As the Lord lives, Boaz is completely convinced that the Lord lives, that he's real. And Boaz is making that statement to Ruth to ground her assurance in that oath. As the Lord lives, it gives Ruth certainty. But Boaz does even more than a promise and an oath. He also gives Ruth a down payment, a tangible evidence of his promise. It may seem like an odd thing, doesn't it? But when they wake up in the early morning darkness, when the text says you can't recognize anyone yet, before Ruth leaves, Boaz takes her to the pile of grain nearby, and he scoops out six measures of barley for her in her cloak. Why six measures? Why doesn't the text just say he gave her some grain to take home? Numbers, we know, 
often have significance in the Bible. And we know that the number seven is very important. It signifies completion or perfection, and we know it signifies rest. This chapter is all about rest, in fact. In verse 1, Naomi seeks rest for Ruth. And in verse 18, the last verse, Naomi tells Ruth to wait because the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There's that word again. When Boaz scoops out six measures of grain, it's very likely that he is communicating something of importance to Ruth. Six is the number that is on the threshold of seven. He is symbolizing that the rest is about to be completed. The redemption is about to be accomplished the very next day. These six measures are a down payment to Ruth and Naomi with much meaning. And when Ruth reports to Naomi, she, Naomi, clearly gets the message. She says she knows that Boaz will do everything in his power to redeem them. And so she tells Ruth to wait. And this brings us to our third main point. How do we apply all of this to our relationship to Jesus Christ? I want us to think of two things. First, to trust in Jesus Christ is to take Jesus at his word. To trust in Jesus is take, in, take Jesus at his word of promise, which we call the gospel, the good news. Boaz gave Ruth his word of promise. Jesus even more powerfully gives us a sure and solid basis on which to come to him. Listen to John three thirty-seven. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the word of promise from Jesus Christ the Lord. You might think, how could God's grace be for me? That's too good to be true. But Jesus gives us the basis of his promise, and that is based on his cross, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, the Lamb of God slain for our sins. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ confirms that he truly triumphed over sin and over death and over hell. And he rose victoriously to guarantee his word of promise. The Bible is full of God's promises. There are thousands of them. And in fact, it tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Isn't that an interesting way to put it. We say, amen, so be it. All of God's promises are amen in Christ. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, spiritual, eternal rest in him. The, the rest promised to Ruth, we know, was temporary. It had to do with security in this life. The rest that Jesus gives is everlasting, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an analogy, this beautiful picture of a river flowing out of us by the Spirit of God that Jesus gives. Whoever drinks, Jesus is promising us that there is a spiritual thirst in each of our hearts, and that thirst is satisfied only with fellowship with our true Creator. Nothing else satisfies that thirst. It's a fellowship with God that was shattered because of our sin, and only Jesus satisfies the thirst in our hearts. Only 
Only Jesus restores that fellowship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. You see, the gospel is rooted in the coming of Jesus in history. We hear a lot about truth and facts these days, and I guess that's important for people to speak the truth and record the truth and the facts. Well, the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ are the supreme facts of history. By the way, I was looking at the headlines on the newspaper on Wednesday, and I read the headline, Joe Biden's Ascension Day. I had to smile at that. They were speaking of the inauguration, of course. And by the way, that day had a promise to defend the Constitution and an oath as well. Talk about promises and oaths and ascensions. But, but do you know that there was a much greater and more glorious Ascension Day 2,000 years ago when Jesus had fulfilled his mission perfectly? And after he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples for 40 days, He ascended to the right hand of the Father, the place of supreme majesty and rule on high, to reign over heaven and earth. And one day that rule will be finally evident to all as we sang in our hymn that every knee will bow, Scripture says. So if you have any hesitancy about putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his word of promise to give you new life, to cleanse you of your sins, to satisfy the thirst of your soul, those undeniable facts of Christ's coming give you a firm and certain promise to trust in. You can trust Jesus Christ. Well, the second application takes it one step beyond that. Make Christ's word of promise the foundation of your assurance as you walk with Christ. Whatever hesitancy or doubt Ruth might have had, and I can imagine that uh, when Ruth got to the threshing floor and quietly laid down there, that she probably did not sleep a wink lying next to to Boaz until he finally woke up and was startled at her being there, and he reassured her. But whatever her doubts might have been in those moments, as soon as Boaz heard her request, he immediately swept away all the possible fears that might have plagued her. He gave her his promise. He gave her his oath. He gave her a down payment. Jesus does the same for each of his trusting children. However weak and however doubting our faith might be, our assurance is based on his word and his oath. In fact, Hebrews 6 verse 16 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, we're the heirs of the promise, those who have trusted in Christ, when he desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, talking about God's oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you hear what he's saying? And the author goes on to write, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What what an image that is. We have an anchor for our souls, for assurance, for encouragement, for hope. We who have fled fled for refuge to Jesus Christ as Lord, we have this strong encouragement. What an amazing assurance the Bible gives us 
on the basis of God's Word. It's very common for Christians to struggle with assurance of salvation. In fact, we're called to to grow in our assurance. We're to make our calling and election sure, we read. And there are different reasons that you might have assurance. Maybe it's because of being victimized as a child, or maybe it's because of deep suffering you're going through. It can be because besetting sin that you're wrestling with in your life. And we do not grow in assurance by looking at ourselves, but by looking at the character of God and the work of Christ and the promise He gives. We keep coming back to that foundation of His Word. Boaz gave a down payment of grain. Do you know that Jesus gives believers a down payment as well? Ephesians 1.14 says that having believed in Him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we possess it. That word, that word guarantee or down pay, payment is like the modern Greek word for engagement ring. It's the same word. The Holy Spirit is like the engagement ring of our salvation. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us great assurance that one day God will bring to completion the work He's begun in our lives. We have the Spirit as a down payment of the whole inheritance of fellowship with God in heaven. And so the Christian life is not to be lived in fear and uncertainty. The Christian life is to be lived in a deep and growing assurance of Christ's love for us and His presence in our lives and His His ultimate victory over all that would lead us astray. Let me leave you with this one thought. The morning after Ruth's strange night on the threshing floor, she had only one thought. The hour of my redemption, which was also her wedding day, is near. She had the word of promise. Naomi told her to sit tight, to just wait. She had the six measures of grain. Brothers and sisters, the whole of our earthly life in Christ Our earthly pilgrimage is like the morning of Ruth's wedding day. We live in expectation. We live in great assurance. Our bridegroom, our Redeemer, is about to be revealed. Let that assurance of Christ's steadfast love, His commitment to you, His great sacrifice for you, give you great comfort and hope an assurance of his presence until that day when you see his face. Amen. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture you've given us in this narrative of the book of Ruth. Thank you for the beauty of it, the simplicity of it, the depths of it. We thank you that you give us more than just bare abstract truth Thank you that Jesus Christ came in history to redeem us. And Lord, thank you for the certainty of your word. Give us your grace to cling to these things, to abide under the shadow of your wings this week, whatever befalls in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of all of our trust and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. 
To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.